listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Before we look at the text and talk through what it says related to the coming of Christ, His first coming and His second coming, let me remind you of um, of our uh, Christmas offering, something that we're doing that we haven't done before. We're asking you to give, and we're calling it Give Hope, and you can go to our website, and there's a tab there for giving to um, give, uh, give Hope. Um, and it's specifically geared toward helping support the Kellers. They've been missionaries to Prague. They came home on furlough with hopes of going back. And because of COVID and because of things happening there and things happening here, they haven't been able to go back and don't see any way of getting back in the foreseeable future. So they're here and they want to serve. Um, but they will continue to need support and help. And they want to serve here in our body. And so we're trying to raise $30,000 so that we can provide them with housing. They've been living with Keith's dad in a rather uh, meager setting of 800 square feet. And so um, if you would give to that, uh, you say, why are you calling it Give Hope? Because we want to try to do some things in our life groups and in our uh, DNAs that Keith is uh, very gifted at relationally in helping us understand what's going on in our heart and life. I'm, I'm in a DNA with Keith and I'm experiencing some of that. But he's also currently and has been for a while, he and Rachel both engaged in counseling with our people in, in a pastoral fashion. Um, he's helping us as pastors with um, pastoral counseling. We're continuing to do that. We're not farming it out to him. He has no interest in uh, being a counselor, but he's, he does want to walk with people. Every time that I recommend him to somebody or recommend somebody to him, Keith says, make sure you tell them that all I have is Jesus. That's all that I can give them. And that's all that we have is Jesus. But um, Keith is uh, very valuable to the kingdom. He's very valuable um, to uh, this church. And so we want to make sure that our brother um, has adequate lodging. We want to continue to support him as one of our missionaries. And so that's what Give Hope is about. It's not only helping them personally, but it's helping us corporately as a body of Christ and using the gifts that he has given Keith and Rachel and their family as God has in his providence set them down here at least for this season. So let me encourage you to give. Um, I, I'm going to give. My family's going to give. There are folks that are already calling me, asking me about giving, and it's going to be a great investment um, in the ministry of the kingdom and the mission of God. Our series is called The Tale of Two Advents. We're looking at the first advent that happened 2,000 years ago, but we're also looking in texts that point to the second advent of Jesus Christ. And where we've gone is we've looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 13, where we see the hope of Christ coming the first time so that when someone dies, we don't have to sorrow as those who have no hope, but also the hope of Christ coming the second time in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Um, and so we're, we're looking at this tale of two advents where hope is compared to death or hope is compared to sorrow. And Chris shared that with us three weeks ago. Last week, we looked at um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and we talked about peace. And we see Isaiah predicting a redeemer who was coming, who was going to give peace. And Ephesians chapter 2 talked about the prince of peace. But peace is compared to conflict and hostility and relational brokenness. Um, war. There's this peace and there's this war. And he compared that in the text. And when the prince of peace comes, um, we will have peace. But, but let us understand this. Hope is found in Christ alone. That's why Colossians 1.27 says that, that it is Christ in you who is the hope of glory. And peace comes in Christ alone. He is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. This morning in week three of our Advent series, we're looking at joy. And the angels proclaim before the birth of Christ that there are good tidings of great joy which shall be for all people at the birth of Christ. But that joy will never be fully realized until Christ returns. 
We're not going to find hope on this earth. We're not going to find peace on this earth. We're not going to find joy on this earth. We're going to get some tastes of it. We're going to get some glimpses of it, but we're going to hunger and thirst for it, and that hunger and thirst will never be satisfied until Christ comes and we are with him. Whereas hope was contrasted with sorrow and peace is contrasted with, with division and conflict and, and violence and turmoil and anxiety and stress and hostility and insecurity, joy is contrasted in the text this morning with suffering. And what we're going to see in the text is this, that when our joy is in Christ, in what he has done, and when our joy is in his return, then whatever we're experiencing between his birth 2,000 years ago and his return that hopefully will be very soon, whatever we experience, no matter how dark or, or dreary or terrible it is, can be experienced with joy. That's what Peter shows us in the text. Before we look at these few verses this morning, I want to answer a couple of questions to kind of set up the context. First of all, since we're talking about joy, let's answer the question, what is joy? Or he uses the word rejoicing, right? Not only just to have joy, but to double down on joy or to multiply joy. So what is joy or rejoicing? And just a, a few words to help us understand what it is, both, both from a technical standpoint, from uh, a word study standpoint, to um, an application standpoint. The word joy or rejoice means to greatly exult or to be full of joy. It literally means much, very, jump or leap, right? That's, if you want to look at it, just, at it, just break it down to what its basic meaning is. It means that something has happened that is consuming me, that is moving me. This joy is so stirred in me that I want to jump and I want to leap. It means getting so glad that one jumps in celebration. It's a deep reaction to something that we greatly value. Joy is a deep reaction to something that we greatly value. Joy is something, it's not this ethereal concept that exists in the abstract. It, it is a reality that flows out of us from the very core of our being. Joy is not the absence of sorrow or suffering, but it is a deeply abiding pleasure in the presence of Christ, even in the middle of gut-wrenching and perhaps unending trials. Let me say that again. What is joy? Joy is not the absence of suffering or sorrow, but a deeply abiding pleasure in the presence of Christ. Pleasure in the presence of Christ, even in the middle of gut-wrenching wrenching, and perhaps unending trials. Let me try to describe joy even more. Ultimate joy is not found in an object or circumstance. Ultimate joy is not found in an object or circumstance. If I just had this, I would have joy. If I could just do this, I would have joy. Joy is not found in an object or circumstance. It is found in a relationship. It is found in a relationship. If you want to scrape everything away and look at who we are and how God made us and how he wired us and how we function, we are relational beings. And joy is found in a relationship. It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is not the source of what brings us joy. Please hear me. It is not you having Jesus so you can pray to him and get him to manipulate some circumstance or provide you with some object and then I'll have joy. Joy is not having what Jesus can do. Joy is having who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the source of our joy. So joy is, get this, joy is relational, not circumstantial. And we've got to understand it. Now, happiness is based on circumstance, happenstance. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about something that's far better. We're talking about something that's far deeper. Joy is relational, not circumstantial. John chapter 15 and verse number 11. Listen to the word of God. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's Jesus talking. Christ's joy in us so that our joy will be full. 
And he says in the next chapter, chapter 16, beginning in verse number uh, 22, listen to the words of Jesus. So also you have sorrow now. Many in this room can relate to that. There are many in our body that are going through sorrow now. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Why? Because I'm going to see him again. He didn't say that he was going to take the sorrow away. He said we were going to have joy that no one could take away. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. And if our hearts understand this truth, then we understand that joy is found in Christ and Christ alone. Messiah is coming. This is what those who were... Uh, living before his birth, understood. He is going to fix everything that is wrong. And what is ultimately wrong is not around us. We don't understand that. Messiah is coming. He's going to fix everything that is wrong. And what is ultimately wrong is not around us. What ultimately is wrong is what is within us. What, ultimately it, it, what, what is ultimately wrong is not circumstantial but relational. We all fell in Adam. We are all sinners. We have all been alienated from the life of God. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are all on a collision course with the wrath of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive, has quickened us, has caused us to be born again and brought into his presence and has invited us to his party. And Psalm 1611 says, that in his presence, in his presence, there is joy forevermore. So what is joy? We need to understand that because he goes over, over it over and over and over it in the text. But secondly, who is Peter writing to? Let us try to move a little closer to the, the context. He's writing to, in, in chapter 1 and verse 1, he's writing to elect exiles of the dispersion. This is important. He's writing to elect exiles of the dispersion. He's writing to people who, because of persecution or invasion, have been uprooted from their family, from their house, from their job, from their country, and spread throughout all the world. The locations that he lists are these people who have been dispersed because, and they understand dispersion, okay? They, they, they understand, historically, the Jewish people understand dispersion, but the Christians are now beginning to understand it under the rule of Rome uh, during this time period between 60 and 70 AD. We, we know that that Titus moved in and dis destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. But so he's writing to these people who were experiencing this dispersion. We know in 722, the Assyrians came in and they took all of the Jews into exile, took them back to their land. We know in 586, they also experienced a dispersion or a, a, a displacement at the hands of the Babylonians. We know that this, they're in the process of seeing this dispersion. They're taking, taken from their homeland. They're taking to foreign lands. And the goal of dispersion, the goal of the diaspora is to take these people out of what they normally exist in, take them away from their family, take them away from the people of their tribe, particularly the Jewish people that have been spread all over the world. As I stand before you today, they are spread all over the world today based in, in many cases on that dispersion, but the objective of dispersion is amalgamation. You say, well, what in the world is amalgamation? Amalgamation is when you take a, a race of people, if we're going to use the term amalgamation as it relates to um, humanity, you take a race of people and you, you put them in another culture with the hopes that they'll mix with that culture so that the culture that they were a part of ceases to exist. So there was this desire historically for the destruction of the Jewish people, but now these Christians are becoming a problem, so let's disperse these Christians, let's uproot them. Let's put them in the worst of circumstances because if we can uproot them, if we can amalgamate them, if we can send them into these cultures, they're, they're not going to survive. Christianity will not survive. The beautiful thing is that these people whose hearts and lives had been transformed now go where in many cases they're, they're in Turkey uh, modern-day Turkey, all across Turkey, they don't have houses, they don't have jobs, they don't have family, they don't have country, they don't own property, they don't have anything. They've got to figure out how to make it. But the one thing that caused them 
to make it was they found other believers because there was something about the transforming power of Jesus Christ in changing the interior world of a human being and giving them a new heart, that amalgamation or dispersion or infiltration could not destroy. And so these people find themselves as a dispersed people sitting around, gathered with other believers, listening to somebody read this letter that Peter is writing to them. That's who he's writing to. I, I know that, uh, that I, I don't want to suffer. Um, but I also don't imagine that many of us has experienced suffering like these people experienced. And I don't want to experience that. But these people, in experiencing that kind of suffering, Peter said to them, and these are not empty words, you need to have joy and rejoice. Now, let's read the text, and uh, I want to just give you uh, three or four simple principles from the text. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, here's where they are, in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and then he mentions the Trinity here, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are up to something in the middle of all of this process, of all of these negative, terrible things that are going on in their lives. They're, they're, they're being uprooted. They're being surrounded by enemies. They're being in a strange place with, without the possibility of going to the airport and getting on a plane and flying back home. Without a credit card. You know, they, they, just, they just can't make it. They don't know what they're going to do. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience for those that may struggle with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a, a Trinitarian theology. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood. These people are atoned people. They don't have anything. They've lost more than they could have ever thought that they would have lost. And this is all he has to offer them. Look, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's all they had. Can I eat it? Can I drink it? Can I smoke it? Can I lay my head on it? No. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I'm hoping we get out of this mess. I'm hoping we get to go home. I'm hoping I get my house back. I'm hoping somebody can find the deed. I hope I get my land back. I hope I get my life back. Those are dead hopes. We have a living hope. You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's behind us. That's historical. That's what he's done. He's looking forward, verse 4, to an inheritance that is, and I love how he strings these words along. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't, he doesn't want you to doubt or question or wonder. He, he, he wants you to know that there's this comparison between the, 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 the dead hope that you put and, and the things that you find joy in that never truly bring joy, and he wants you to put your joy in something that is so durable that nothing can spoil it, nothing can disturb it, nothing can steal it, nothing can transform it or change it, nothing can make it go away. Notice what he says. To an inheritance. And it's an inheritance for you and for me if we're in Christ because we are joint heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ has, we're going to have. We have an, an inheritance in him if we believe in him. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. God's power is guarding our inheritance through faith for a salvation. Watch. He's already talked about what Christ has done in the past. Now he's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ in the future to be revealed in the last, excuse me, I missed a line, being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you, what? Rejoice. In this you rejoice find joy he's looking back at what Christ has done he's looking forward to what Christ is going to do and now he 
brings them back to the reality of where they are. He brings them back to the reality of where they are. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. We want glory now. In fact, we, we, we are so audacious that we are willing to compete with God for his glory. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, he's talking about now the present impact. We're looking forward, we're in the middle, we're being tested, we're going through trials, it's, it's strengthening our faith, but, but the end result of that perhaps may not be seen in this life. It may be seen, it result in the praise and, and the, the, the glory um, and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but now he goes, brings us back to the presence. Though you have not seen him, you love him. So this suffering is doing something in me that's having a, a current impact. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him because of suffering. And, get this, rejoice with joy. I would think that rejoicing is, is, is having double joy. And you have double joy with joy. And he says this, this, this thing just gets a hope to you. I don't know if you know what it means for something to get a hope to you. You know, or, uh, you know, come amongst you. It, this, this comes amongst you. It, it gets all, all, all over the inside of you and, and just flows out of you, the outside of you. Notice what he says. He said, I, 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 these things are happening as a result of the suffering and, and that, that brings a rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And, and that's why we're going through suffering. And then he looks forward, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, which is the ultimate goal. Of life. Let me let me just give you a, a, a couple of simple thoughts, or three or four simple thoughts. Number one, joy is found in the providence of God. Joy is found in the providence of God. He he takes us into this text and, and immediately gives us some GPS variant on where they are and what's going on with them practically, but then he immediately takes them into the, the, the activity of the Trinity. And I may not be reading this text right, but as I read it, I see the Trinity in the center of their circumstances. They were where they were on the basis of the combined efforts of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They were where they were because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Sprinkling with blood is in, indicative of uh, the uh, atoning work of a substitutionary sacrifice on the behalf of God's covenant people. So there, there is this sprinkling of blood which indicates something has died to pay for sin, but there is also this sprinkling of blood that is indicative of life for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So there is death and life uh, combined in this sprinkling of blood. You've been sprinkled with the blood of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. You now have life in Christ. So we see the Trinity working at the heart of their circumstances. We see the Father and the Son and the Spirit working at the heart of their circumstances. We don't get that sometimes. We think stuff just happens. In fact, many times we think that the things that happen to us are a result of the things that we have done. They're consequential. And that's true, and I'm not denying that, but I would say that even God is sovereign over the choices and consequences that we experience in life. Because my work is not going to cancel out the work of 
the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Secondly, not only do we see the Trinity, but we see God's sovereignty. He's essentially saying to us that the, the Trinitarian actions of the Father and the Son and the Spirit are working sovereignly. In other words, the things that are going on in your life, these terrible bad things are orchestrated by God and His sovereignty. And you, in the midst of this difficulty in the providential work of God, have this place of stability that everybody has on their best and worst day, which is, he says at the end of the text, grace and peace multiplied. No matter where we are, what we're going through, we all need grace and we all need peace. And he's saying, you guys are going through this difficulty at the hand of a providential sovereign God and grace and peace is multiplied to you. So we see joy that is found in the providence of God. That's convicting. <laughs> I just ain't there. How about you? That's convicting. I want to control my world. I want to control my life. I want to control my health. I want to control my family. I want to control where I live. I want to control what I eat. Somebody took me out to eat recently, and they said, hey, this is really good. Why don't you try it? And they ordered it for me. <laughs> you know, when you get to be my age, you just don't want nobody telling you what to eat. <laughs> I was mad for about 20 minutes. I wanted to whoop the brother because I want to control things. I want to control things. Sometimes God just puts us in places to show us who's really in charge. And he's not doing it to show off. He's doing it because he loves us. I just wonder if maybe we ought to just right now grab our white flag and start waving it and say, Father, I surrender. I surrender to your providence. And when we surrender to his providence, we find joy. And I'm not telling you I'm there. But I, I would certainly rather go there willingly than to be forced to go there. It's a good place to be. When you get there, there's grace and there's peace that's multiplied. But, but let, me, let me try to just put it in a little different perspective. If a divine messenger were to come to you and, um, and he were to say to you, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit got together and decided that you're going to experience some very difficult circumstances. Again, what would you do? If they were to, this divine messenger were to say, this is the will of the Trinity. We're putting you through these circumstances with a group of people from different places. The most valuable things that you will possess in this season is grace and peace. We're going to go through this with you, the Trinity telling us that. You are going to experience our presence and our power in ways that you could never imagine. We're going to put you through circumstances that no one in their right mind would ever choose. But if you knew that the situation that you were in right now were divinely orchestrated by a sovereign God, would you say, I am going to have joy in knowing that God providentially is working in my life no matter how bad it gets? If you knew that. Do you trust him? I, I love... Um, Hebrews, Hebrews 12.2. It says in Hebrews 12.2, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is not uh, unusual. This is the way God works. And so, so we find joy in the providence of God. Secondly, we, we find joy in the finished work of Christ. Beginning in verse 3, he lays out the finished work of Christ for us. And, and there are two things that I want you to see uh, on, on my outline. I've got some subpoints, but there are two things I want you to see. When we reflect on the finished work of Christ, we worship, number one. And number two, when we reflect on the finished work of Christ, we wait. When we reflect on the finished work of Christ, we worship when we reflect on the finished work of Christ, we wait. Notice what he says in the text. He says, blessed, <laughs> blessed. Um, the, the word blessed is, uh, is the Greek word to, where we get our word eulogize from, e eulogy. 
A eulogy is speaking well of someone. A, a eulogy is celebrating by praising. And so here he is speaking to these people who are experiencing negative circumstances at the providential hand of Almighty God, and he's telling them to worship. Speak well of God. Praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. I've never had to be put in prison. I've visited prisons before to visit people in prison. I didn't like that, but I've never been incarcerated, particularly for doing something good. And here these guys are singing praises to God because they believed that God was so powerful, so sovereign, so providential, that if they found themselves locked in the center of a prison, they were still going to praise him. They were still going to praise him. And so he starts out by telling us to praise him, have joy. When we have joy in the finished work of Christ, we begin with worship. And, and, and then as, as we worship, we see two things. Number one, we see that Christ paid for our past through crucifixion. He brings out in the text this great mercy. Mercy is this. Mercy is withholding from us the judgment we deserve. When we say have mercy, we're saying don't give me what I deserve. And the text says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. When you plea for mercy, when you appeal to the mercy of God, you essentially are saying, please let somebody else pay for my offense. That's what the, that's what the plea for mercy is. There is no way that a just God can let offense go unpunished. If he were to do that, he would cease to be just and he would cease to be God and he would cease to be holy. So, therefore, a holy God, when confronted with sin, must kill sin, must destroy sin. Sin is so bad that you don't just slap somebody on the hand. Sin is so bad that you have to kill the host. The wages of sin is death. We don't get that. We don't get the enormity. We don't get the severity. We don't get the depth. So understanding that I stand before a holy God condemned to die, I then plead to him for mercy, but God can't pour mercy out on me unless someone else is killed for my offense. So the death of Christ is the basis of God pouring mercy out on you and me. The love of Christ is the basis of God pouring out his mercy on you and me. So I'm worshiping now because I understand the finished work of Christ. God is able to pour mercy out on me because of the death of Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us Instead of giving us death, he has given us life. He causes us to be born again, not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because he is merciful and Christ has paid for our sin through his death. So we're going to the funeral home. I have died. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. And people are going to go in and say, yeah, he was a sinner. And yes, he died because of his sin. But when they walk into the funeral home, they see somebody that has been born again. How amazing would that be? All of us are dead spiritually. We're alienated from the life of God. But when we appeal to the mercy of God on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, he then causes us by his power to be born again and we become new creatures in Christ Jesus so there is joy in the finished work of Christ there is joy in the finished work of Christ we have new life we have living hope because it rests solely in Christ's death and his burial. So Christ is paid for our past through crucifixion, but Christ is paid for our future through resurrection. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, not a dead hope like all, all that this world offers, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Jesus Christ lived, he died, he rose again, he defeated defeated death, and based on his great mercy and his resurrection and his conquering of death, he now has power over and owns all things and controls all outcomes and determines that all who believe in him can be granted an inheritance based on his finished work. We can be granted eternal life. He has paid it all. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can he do that? Because he's already paid for it. Well, what happens when I do sin? If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He stands with us pleading our case before the Father, saying, Father, I have paid for Mark Powell's sin, therefore have mercy on him. And the Father says, I, I, I will have mercy on him. It's all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because he paid it all, we have a new future. We're looking forward to an inheritance. It's an inheritance that's better than any inheritance that any of us could ever get on this earth. An inheritance usually is something that someone gives us when they die, but this inheritance is different. This is something that we experience when we die. Now, we have an inheritance because Christ died and paid for our sin. And he's left us his last will and testament. That's why we call it the New Testament. And his last will and testament tells us that when we die, our death brings us into his presence and we then experience the joy and the glory of his inheritance that we find in him. He tells us in the text that that it is an inheritance that's on reserve. It is an inheritance that is unthreatened, that is undisturbed. Nothing can spoil it. No one can steal it. No one can cause it to lose its value. Thieves can't break in. Hackers can't break the code. Inflation can't touch it. Why? Because it's all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's based on what he has done. And in the spiritual realm and in the heavenly realm, he is unaffected by the things that are going on here on this earth. So we look at the finished work of Christ and we rejoice in the finished work of Christ. And when we understand the finished work of Christ, we worship. Even if you're dispersed, even if you've lost everything, you still have the finished work of Christ. Even if you've lost everything, even if you've lost all of your family records, even if you can't go to the courthouse and somebody uh, read what you're supposed to get, Even if the Romans have confiscated your land that's been in your family for 10 generations, if all of that happens, you have the finished work of Christ, you have the mercy of God, and you have an inheritance that's in a realm that's a a far, in my opinion, a far greater reality than the realm that we're living in right now. So there there is this amazing... So when we reflect on Christ's finished work, we worship, we worship, and that worship transcends anything that we can do. That's what he's telling us. Secondly, when we reflect on the finished work of Christ, we wait, wait. I don't know about you, but I want it now. I don't know why they're taking so long at the drive-thru window. And I don't know why they can't get it right. You know, I want it now. I want want everything to be microwaved, immediate. I want immediate gratification. I want instant gratification. But we're waiting for something that's better than anything that could ever be experienced in this life. So we wait. And we don't understand waiting. The the finished work of Christ, while we have experienced it and we hope in it, the, the fullness of experiencing the finished work of Christ is not intended to be fully experienced in this life. And we don't get that. It is in a place that we cannot go to on this earth that is currently being guarded and it will be fully be revealed at some point in time in the future. That's what he's telling us in the text may be found and result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, in this you rejoice. In what? In in being a movie star and having all the money that I want and being an athlete and having all the money that I want and being able to purchase everything that I want and control everybody that I want and drive any car that I want and live anywhere that I want, have have all the um, amenities and all the luxuries, just have everything that I want and I'm going to rejoice in that. 
why don't we look at all the people who are doing that and their lives are, are dead end in the joy spectrum. They can't find joy. They can't find joy in a relationship. They can't find joy in marriage. They can't find joy in affairs. They can't find joy anywhere. But, but my joy is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and when I reflect on his finished work, I worship. But when I reflect on the fact that his work, while it is completed and everything is guaranteed and nothing can disturb it, there is an inheritance waiting for me and I'm not going to realize the completeness of his finished work until this life is over and I experience the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. So he closes it out by saying, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice with joy. You rejoice in the finished work of Christ, but you, re you, you rejoice in the hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ when this life is over. Joy is found in a relationship. The relationship that brings joy is a relationship with Christ alone. And he has done everything that needs to be done for you to have a relationship with him. Therefore, there should be this transcending joy that trumps everything that we're experiencing. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we should find joy in the finished work of Jesus Christ because all of my past has been paid for and I don't have to drag that junk with me through this life. And all of my future is awaiting me and nothing is going to make it go away and nothing is going to disturb it. Not anything that anybody else does and not anything that I do. And that's where the real value is found. Thirdly, we see in the text joy in the providence of God. We see in the text joy in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see joy in suffering. Beginning in verse 6, he says, Though now, the second half of verse 6, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why are you grieved by various trials? Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. By the way, by the way, my faith and your faith, they're not where they need to be. Your faith may be in a good place, but it's not where it needs to be. And so there is this testing that comes through circumstances that I, I think refines our hearts to recognize that our true joy is found in Christ alone. Our hearts believe lies. We take the straws of our life and we dip them down in so many things and we're trying to find joy. That's so good. Right? He's saying, no, no, no. As we go through the refinement process, we're trying to find joy in a lot of stuff and we're finding out joy is not in those things. As we go through the refinement process, we more and more and more and more and more as we get older and go through more stuff are recognizing that there are things that don't bring joy that are not Him, but we're left with those things that are Him and Him alone and in them we find our joy. Let me just, let me just give you a, um, a, a few bullet points under joy is found in suffering. Here's what the text tells us. The text tells us, first of all, that, that this suffering is temporary. This suffering is temporary. You say, oh, that's good. I'll be glad when my suffering's over. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is it may not be over until your life is over, and that's still temporary. Life is very temporary. I, I love what Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians. He said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Hallelujah. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair. That's so painful. Do you feel the pain of those words? Does that not make you want to cry? It does me. My heart just sinks as I read it. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Wow. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Hallelujah. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul is saying, I'm suffering and I'm experiencing death that you might experience life. And he said, I'm okay with that. And as I go through these, these negative experiences and I go through the suffering I'm okay with it because it is resulting in thanksgiving and praise to those who are looking and saying that the presence of Christ really must be real in this person's life. So Paul said in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. By the way, can I just, 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 uh, uh, just update right here? You need to hear this. Every one of us, our outer self is wasting away. Every single one of us. I don't, I don't care how young you are or how good you feel or how many times you go to the gym or how many supplements you're taking or what your DNA makeup is or if you don't have any bad genes and you come from a perfect family and, and, and if you have a problem, you can, you can buy your way out of it. Your outer man is wasting away. Every single one of us. Let's just, let's just come to grips with that. None of us is going to live forever. We think we are. Every one of us is going to die He says, my outer man is wasting away. Listen, 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 listen. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. It's in the inner man. Anytime anybody calls me with a problem, I want to fix it. I do. I want your circumstances. I want my circumstances. I want my children's circumstances. I want it to go well. I want to fix it. A lot of times we spend so much attention trying to fix the stuff on the outside that we never deal with what's on the inside. And when we go through suffering, it causes us to understand just how tenuous, just how um, frail, just how thin, just how fleeting the physical is. And it leaves us standing with the shell of a spiritual person and that's all we have and we find out that's all we need. He said, man, the outside's wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's where it's at, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> For this light momentary affliction. Say what? is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're waiting. We're waiting. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This suffering is temporary. Even if it lasts your whole life. Secondly, this suffering is necessary. He tells us that in the text. Notice, he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, that's not a question. It's a statement. It is necessary. Sufferings are inevitable. We are going to experience suffering. Second, thirdly, the suffering is not only temporary, it's not only necessary, it is secondary. It's secondary to what it accomplishes. The benefit of the suffering is greater than the suffering. What the suffering produces is worth the pain it causes. It's a momentary light affliction versus an eternal weight of glory. And if we could just understand that, and I'm not saying that I do, and I'm not chiding you if you don't. He's also telling us, fourthly, that this suffering is difficult. Look at the text. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. Grieved. Having been put to grief. The word grieve means distress. It means deep emotional pain. It, mean, it means severe pain, intense pain. It means to bring to heaviness. He's telling us that the suffering is temporary. The suf suffering is, is necessary. The suffering is secondary to what Christ accomplishes through it in our interior world. But he's also telling us that it really is suffering. It's difficult. Fifthly, he tells us in the text that suffering has an eternal purpose. 
It produces a purified faith that results in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may not see it now, but now we'll be gone in a minute. And it will be obvious when Christ returns. The, the, the remedy, the understanding, the answer, the solution to our suffering may never be realized in this life. We may never have an answer why. Can God handle me asking? Yes, he can. But we may never have an answer why. But when he comes back, when he comes back, it will make sense in some way, shape, or form. Suffering has an eternal purpose. And this suffering produces, according to the text, a, a current reality. I'm looking forward, but right now in this moment while I'm suffering and I suffer with joy, I will experience his power and presence that can only come through suffering. There is, there is a power of God and a presence of God that, on a level that can only be experienced through suffering. It's people who suffer that understand it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. I look at people that are suffering and I don't want to suffer like they suffer. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to struggle inside. I don't want to be all twisted up inside. But the thing that we don't see is the presence of Christ and the power of Christ in the midst of the suffering. They're not flexing their muscles. They're not casting out demons. They're not turning straw into gold. They're not turning decayed teeth into gold teeth. They're not doing all of these things. There's a strength that transcends that in the spiritual realm that is far heavier, far weightier, far more important. I will experience his power and presence that it can only come through suffering. Secondly, he tells us this in the text, my love for him will grow and my love for this world will diminish though you have not seen him. You will love him. You will love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength which then gives us the capacity to love one another the way we're supposed to love one another. People are going to know that we're his disciples if we have love one for another, but we love him because he first loved us and the love of Christ is shed abroad in our heart. And it's the love of Christ that compels us to love others. And so there is this great love transaction that's, helping, that, that's happening among God's people as they're dispersed and as they gather and as they read this text. There is this love that they're experiencing for God at the loss of all things and there's this love that they're experiencing for each other in the loss of all things that screams to the world around them that Jesus Christ is real. And that only happens in suffering. Not only does my love grow, but my faith expands. You believe in him. And not only do I believe in him, but when that time comes, and even before that time comes, I will be rejoicing with joy in expressible. That's joy. That's joy. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> that sounds upside down. Isn't the Christian life supposed to make life better? Isn't the Christian life supposed to make life easier? He's saying no. We must have joy in the providence of God. We must have joy in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We must have joy in suffering and that's where true joy is found. And then, then finally, and I'll just mention it, verse 9, joy is found in future hope. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have it now. It's reserved in heaven. It's in a lockbox. Nobody can touch it. But one day it's going to be realized. In other words, it's already, but not yet. And so we find joy in future hope in anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. So hope Peace and joy. Joy to the world, right? Um, let me close with these thoughts. Joy is not found in ordering your life around avoiding hardship, sorrow, difficulty, or pain. Joy is not found in ordering your life around avoiding hardship, sorrow, difficulty, or pain. They are all coming to us all. Joy, lasting joy, comes from rest in the God who came as a baby, who lived, who died, who rose, and who is coming back. You will never find joy in anything or anyone else. You were designed psychologically, emotionally, 
biologically, in every way imaginable, physiologically. You were designed, everything about you was designed to find joy in Christ and Christ alone. And you can find that joy in him because of his finished work. Secondly, joy is relational, not circumstantial. And apart from a new heart and a new life, and apart from being born again, we don't know how to relate the way we were created to relate with God or with each other. Our hope is not in running from relationship to relationship. Our hope is in being in a right relationship with God who made us. It is in his presence, Psalm 1611, that we find joy forevermore. Joy is relational. Suffering is inevitable. The only variable in suffering is how you respond to it. Suffering is inevitable. The only variable is how you respond to it. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice. So, so suffering is inevitable. The only variable is how we respond to it. James said in James 1, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. Nothing shapes our life like our response to suffering. I didn't say nothing shapes our life like suffering. I said nothing shapes our life like our response to suffering. Just, again, confession. I would have to admit that what little bit of suffering I've experienced in my life, I didn't respond to it well. <laughs> and I don't want to do over. Right? Nothing shapes our life like our response to suffering. How are you responding to suffering? And then finally... Heaven is real. Heaven is real. Heaven is real. Eternal life is real. And it's better than anything. I, I've, I don't know how. I, I, I've Wikipedia uh, Switzerland. I'm like, I just want to get away. You know? <laughs> go, go hide in the mountains. It seems like people are really smart there and loving and everything's peaceful. So all of a sudden now on my Instagram feed, and I'm... I'm I follow about like five people on Instagram. If I follow you, don't feel bad. I just kind of follow my kids, okay? Um, ain't no telling what I'd be preaching if I followed some of y'all on Instagram. Amen? I mean, I'd, I'd be like, boom. But if I do say something that just kind of hits you between the eyes, it's not because I saw what you're doing out there on Instagram, okay? Um, but but uh, I'm, I'm like, man, I just I wish I could just, that's so beautiful. Comes across the feed, all the all the beautiful pictures, all the beautiful places, all the snow and the trains and the houses look like they've never experienced uh, a, a smoke from a chimney on it, or uh, a, a, you know a dog walking through the yard. I mean, it's just it's just uh, amazing. Heaven is better. Heaven is real, and heaven is better than anything that we can own or experience here on this earth. Luke, Luke chapter 10, uh, verse number 17. L listen, listen to this, and, and with this I'll close and we'll, we'll remember the Lord through um, communion. The 72 returned. Now Jesus has, has just brought these guys in. He's trained them and now he's commissioned them. He's sent them out. They're going out in the power of the Spirit. Um, and, and they come back. <laughs> the 72 returned with joy. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all, and, and, uh, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's better in heaven. And we suffer, and we suffer temporarily, but we suffer joyfully because our hope is laid up in heaven for us. Heaven is real. And the only way that you can make reservations is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is joy in his providence. There is joy in his finished work. 
There is joy in suffering. There is joy in future hope. You can have joy today because Christ has come. The juice and the bread every week, we mention it, is for believers. It's for those who are coming to grips with and examining their heart and confessing their sin. It's for those who want to celebrate what Christ has done, look back at his finished work, celebrate all the, all the baggage is gone, it's been paid for, looking forward to when we drink this new with him in his kingdom. And so we come and remember the Lord. Try to, try to get everything out of your mind and focus this morning. Let this be a time of repentance. Let this be a time of celebrating the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. Let it be a time where we repent of the fact that we've tried to find joy in everything else except who he is and what he's done. And may we pray that he renew our joy this morning as we remember him through communion. I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite you to go to one of these four stations. You can gather with your life group or DNA or family or friends and pray, and then we'll come back and uh, have a final song and a benediction this morning.